This episode includes discussions of sexuality and detailed accounts of self-harm that might not be suitable for listeners under the age of 13. Pseudonyms have been used to protect the identities of living people. As far as we know, the body we're born into is the only vessel we'll ever inhabit. We live with it, for better or worse, for our entire lives. So when we look into the mirror, we associate a reflection with who we are, with our identity. If we don't like what we see, we can sometimes make changes that can alter our outward appearance. We can dye our hair, take a yoga class, or change our shirt. But for some people, those steps aren't enough. Like Adam, he knew what needed to be done. He sat quietly in his car, heart racing, scanning the dimly lit parking lot. He didn't want anyone to intervene. He'd been planning for far too long. And that night, he finally worked up the courage to perform the do-it-yourself medical procedure. Adam climbed into the back seat and poured dry ice into a trash can. He then lowered his leg into the freezing carbon dioxide. The chemicals seared his flesh, but the pain didn't deter him. Adam frantically opened bag after bag, packing more dry ice around his lower leg. He knew his skin cells were slowly dying. The pain was excruciating, but it was nothing compared to his feelings of relief and accomplishment. He sat in his car for about 10 hours before driving himself to the hospital. He thought his plan through. He'd even installed hand controls into his car so he wouldn't have to use his leg. After all, he was sure this change would be permanent. This time, his plan would work because Adam believed doctors would finally agree to amputate his leg. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. We'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first and only episode on Body Integrity Dysphoria, or BID, formerly known as Body Integrity Identity Disorder. This condition can compel an otherwise healthy patient to, among other possibilities, amputate a limb or sever their spinal cord to become paralyzed. This week, we'll explore the history of BID and the early researchers who tried to understand the condition. We'll also look into the lives of several people with the rare form of dysphoria and try to uncover its cause. 
In the late 1970s, a sex researcher at Johns Hopkins University came across something interesting in the pornographic publication, Penthouse Magazine. That month's issue featured an expose on unusual erotic fantasies. One page covered amputations at length. Anonymous contributors spoke of their desire to have sex with someone who'd lost a limb. But some writers described sexual fantasies of having an arm or leg removed from themselves. The admissions intrigued the researcher. He figured there had to be some root psychological condition driving this desire. He resolved to dig deeper into the subject. So the researcher joined a team led by professor of medical psychology, John Money, who'd spent his career researching human sexuality. He wanted to study people who became sexually aroused by amputations, primarily on their own bodies. But they were rare enough that Money only found two subjects. The two middle-aged men had separately called Johns Hopkins Hospital looking for a consultation. They'd each inquired about having one of their legs removed. The physicians told them it wasn't possible. For both men, there was nothing physically wrong with their limb. Unless it needed urgent care or they were suffering from a life-threatening infection, no doctor at the facility would perform the procedure. The hospital's decisions were informed by an ancient pledge called the Hippocratic Oath. Most healthcare professionals recite the creed before they receive their licenses. It dates back thousands of years to ancient Greece and sets the standard of ethics in medicine. The oath could be summarized as, do no harm. Doctors must always do what's best for the patient. And in these two cases, the doctors didn't feel like removing otherwise healthy limbs was in the best interest of the patients. While both of the men were disappointed by the response, they weren't surprised. It wasn't the first time they'd been denied. But the hospital knew about Money's research and referred the two patients to the psychiatric department. Both subjects agreed to enroll in Money's study, but asked to remain anonymous, so we'll use pseudonyms. The first subject, Ted, told researchers that for most of his life, he'd fantasized about amputations. It had all begun when he was two years old and badly burned his leg in a kitchen accident. The healing process lasted for almost a year, and during recovery, he had managed just fine with one functional leg. Ted felt that was one of the first moments that he considered life without his leg. As he grew up, he saw individuals with missing limbs out in public and marveled at how they could do just as much as everyone else. His admiration morphed into envy. He wanted to have his leg amputated, too. As Ted went through puberty, he began having sexual fantasies about amputation. His desires varied. Sometimes he thought about having his left leg removed or having sex with people who'd had limbs amputated. As Ted reached adulthood, he said he'd had two sexual encounters with amputees, a man and a woman. Since John Money was a sex researcher, he questioned Ted at length about his encounters and about his sexual preferences and gender identity. Ted confessed that he identified as a woman. Ted said, there are scattered occasions when I feel like a woman, viscerally, in terms of body image, 
and in these situations, I loathe myself. It makes me very apprehensive. Ted lived as a man, but identified as a woman. Ted never disclosed a preferred gender pronoun, so from this point on, we'll be using they. Sadly, Money's reaction to Ted's identity as a trans woman was less than empathetic. Even sex researchers lacked a nuanced understanding of sexual and gender identity in the 1970s. And when he learned that Ted was bisexual and trans, he made several stereotypical assumptions. Money said, transsexualism has been known to be associated with self-mutilation and self-castration. A lesser degree of transposition was evident in that bisexualism was a feature. In other words, he assumed that Ted's gender identity and sexual preferences were inherently harmful and that they caused Ted's dysphoria around amputation. He diagnosed Ted with a paraphilia, or an unusual sexual desire that involves dangerous activities. Think of it as an extreme fetish. A fetish is an erotic fascination with an object or body part that isn't explicitly sexual. A person might fetishize feet, inanimate objects like leather clothing, or even activities or scenarios, like tying or being tied up by a partner. Scientists believe fetishes stem from early childhood experiences. Psychologist Dr. Mark Schwartz explained, in the first 10 years of someone's life, there is hard wiring of sexual arousals, and then at puberty, it sort of turns on. People can go to great lengths to satisfy their fetishes. The global sex toy market is expected to be worth $52.7 billion by 2026. But some fetishes, like choking or extreme S&M, can be risky to explore. A fetish crosses into paraphilia territory when it causes harm to the patient or others. While body integrity dysphoria is not a paraphilia, we can see why he initially thought that. Money's steady subjects had dangerous desires too. They weren't satisfied to just sleep with an amputee or fantasize about removing their legs. They wanted to have their own limbs removed. Ted felt like they had a foreign appendage strapped to their body. They didn't see their leg as their own. It didn't belong to them, and Ted wanted it gone. They called several hospitals trying to get the leg removed, but each hospital refused. To the doctors, Ted's request sounded absurd, and with each denial, Ted's longing for something they couldn't have only grew. Over time, they slipped into depression, resigned to the fear that they would always have this seemingly foreign body part attached to them. Every day was another reminder that Ted wasn't living the life they wanted. One day, Ted's desperation took hold. They sat down with a hammer and a long metal rod that was tapered at one end. They hit the rod so hard that it lodged into their shin bone. Then they rubbed saliva and mucus into the wound, hoping that it would become infected. Ted's wish was granted a few days later when their leg turned scarlet red. Ted checked into the hospital, hoping the doctors would amputate. When the medical staff asked what had happened, Ted lied, claiming it was a work accident. 
The doctors believed them, but they did everything they could to save Ted's leg. Amputation was a last resort. Much to Ted's dismay, doctors got the infection under control. The leg was saved, and their desire to have it removed remained unsatisfied. After the failed attempt at infection, Ted searched for benign ways to deal with their dysphoria. They took classes at the local college and learned about prosthetics. They volunteered with groups that helped amputees. The classes and volunteer shifts made Ted feel a little better, but they still desperately wanted to have their leg removed. They told the researchers how the limb triggered intense bouts of depression. And Ted wasn't alone in his psychological symptoms. Most of Ted's experiences were mirrored by the second subject, Daniel. Daniel was born with a minor case of clubfoot, a condition that made his foot twist inward. It gave him a limp and made him feel ashamed of his body. While he had it surgically corrected before puberty, the emotional scars remained. Like Ted, Daniel began fantasizing about amputations around age 11. Daniel was also aroused by the idea of having a leg amputated and of having sex with amputees. Daniel, too, was sexually active with both men and women, but he identified as gay. Daniel never slept with an amputee, but he often thought about it during intercourse with his partner. And like Ted, Daniel also reached out to several hospitals and wasn't able to find a doctor willing to perform the procedure. But at least he wasn't alone. In a newspaper personal section, he found a community of people who shared his dysphoria. They offered support and advice on how to perform the amputation on his own. They suggested wrapping a tourniquet around his leg until the blood was cut off and the leg slowly died. Daniel also heard of people using weights and dry ice to kill the tissue in their limbs. But Daniel realized that he didn't want to use those methods. Not just because the suggestions were dangerous or painful, he wanted doctors to validate his desires. It didn't seem fair that the medical system wouldn't treat him. Like Ted, Daniel compared his experience to being trans. He told Money's team, I still believe it is interesting to note that trans individuals can obtain sex change operations, people obtain cosmetic surgery to meet the norms of society, and I cannot obtain my fulfillment legitimately. I believe legitimate avenues should be available for this living process. As they expressed in the study, both Daniel and Ted were frustrated by the apparent lack of empathy from the medical community. Both had seen psychiatrists but therapy did nothing. Given the commonalities between Daniel and Ted, Money assumed they shared the paraphilia. He didn't understand how it had been caused, and his conclusions were shaded by his bias against LGBTQ people. But he named the condition apotemnophilia, which meant amputation love in Greek. Money used it as a broad umbrella term to refer to anyone with an amputation fetish. It covered people like Ted and Daniel, who wanted to have their limbs removed, and people who wanted to have sex with amputees. In the 1980s, Money tried to continue his studies, but it was hard for him to find subjects. Apotemnophilia was rare. 
It was also taboo, so those experiencing body integrity dysphoria weren't likely to be very public about it. But one member of his team, Dr. Greg Firth, became an advocate for those with this form of dysphoria. He understood the emotional turmoil behind the condition and the desire so powerful, people risked their lives to have it fulfilled. That's because Dr. Greg Firth secretly suffered from body integrity dysphoria. Next, Dr. Firth travels to Mexico seeking fulfillment and understanding. Now back to the story. In 1977, a team of researchers at Johns Hopkins University identified a fascinating and rare form of dysphoria, which they called apotemnophilia. People with the condition expressed an intense desire to have their limbs amputated, which researchers believed was fueled by a sexual fetish. Just before 1986, one person who suffered from body integrity dysphoria, whom we'll call James, wrote a letter to the lead researcher John Money. James had read Money's previous work, but thought the team had gotten some facts wrong. James found amputations erotic, but he knew of others with apotemnophilia who found no sexual pleasure in it at all. In the letter, James referenced someone in the community named Simon. Simon had never felt a sexual connection to amputations, and still he tried to perform an amputation on himself just to feel fulfilled. He didn't see his leg as part of his body and thought he'd never feel satisfied until it was removed. So Simon fired a shotgun into his leg. The wound was grisly, and more importantly, it damaged the tissue so badly that doctors had to remove the limb. Simon claimed that he didn't regret his actions or the pain he had to endure. Instead, he wished he'd done it sooner. Perhaps an earlier amputation would have eliminated a lot of emotional pain in his adult life. James's letter concluded, At least two of my correspondents, one man and one woman, seriously desire to have a leg amputated. They are both very firmly focused on the loss of a single limb and do not seem to turn on to the process. If I could, I would allow them to realize their respective long-term dreams. Money was astonished. James's letter had seemingly provided evidential support for some of Money's assumptions, like that there was apparently a connection between body integrity dysphoria and trans identity. But he didn't know what to make of Simon's claim that the desire was non-sexual for some people. He was also intrigued by Simon's successful amputation. He'd heard several accounts of people with apotemnophilia who tried to have a limb removed. But this was the first account of someone fully executing the separation. Surprisingly, James claimed that Simon was content post-amputation. This flew in the face of what Money knew about fetishes. According to psychotherapist David Porter, fetishes are a conditioned response, meaning a person repeats the eroticized activity. For example, a person with a foot fetish will seek out opportunities to sexualize feet again and again. But Simon didn't want to amputate more limbs. Simon was happy with the loss of the leg. 
which suggested his dysphoria wasn't a fetish at all. Money's theories were incorrect. Ultimately, Dr. Money let his ego get the best of him. He'd already made up his mind that apotemnophilia was a sexual disorder, and he didn't want to consider any evidence that suggested otherwise. So he may not have comprehended all of the insights in James's letter. But Dr. Greg Firth couldn't dismiss the discovery so easily. He was a New York psychoanalyst who'd worked with Money and the Johns Hopkins team when they first published their study. More importantly, Firth had body integrity dysphoria. Since he'd been four years old, he imagined what it would be like to live without a leg. He even had a preference for the location where his leg should end. It would be just above the right knee. His calf and foot felt like a foreign appendage. As he grew up and entered the medical field, Firth kept this condition a secret from his co-workers. He knew most people didn't share his desire to have a limb amputated, and he feared his friends and peers would judge him if they knew how he really felt. He didn't want anyone to think he was emotionally disturbed or unfit to do his job. For 20 years, he quietly networked with a community of other people with apotemnophilia. He encouraged his friends to accept themselves and to pursue their desires, however unusual they may feel. If more people openly shared their wishes for amputations, eventually medical professionals would have to recognize them as legitimate and necessary. Following his own advice, Firth finally confided in a few fellow doctors, hoping someone would give him his amputation. But they all refused. So, in 1996, almost 20 years after he'd assisted on Money's study, 52-year-old Firth did something daring. Firth was on a business trip in San Diego when he noticed an ad in the paper. Just south of the border, a physician named John Ronald Brown had performed over 600 gender confirmation surgeries. He'd also do any number of cosmetic procedures for a price. So Firth reached out. Brown didn't even ask why Firth wanted his leg removed. He simply promised he could perform the surgery for $3,000. Once he paid and set his appointment, Firth called a friend named Philip Bondi, who also had apotemnophilia. They'd made a pact that if Firth had his leg removed, Bondi would follow through with an amputation as well. So when Firth reached out, Bondi was ecstatic to hear that both of their dreams were about to come true. In February 1997, Firth made his way to the Clinica Santa Isabella in Tijuana, Mexico. There, he met with Brown and his assisting physician. After decades of waiting, he was one step closer to living a happier life, one where he felt whole. But Firth's troubles weren't over yet. When he mentioned why he wanted to have his leg removed, Brown's assistant was disgusted. He stormed out of the room and the surgery was canceled. Firth was devastated, but Brown reassured him that he'd get everything sorted out, then reschedule the procedure. Firth had to wait for a little over a year before Brown called back with good news. He'd found a new assistant, but the procedure would now cost $10,000. Firth paused. It was a lot of money. 
but he reasoned that in the end, it would be worth it. He wired Brown the cash. When the day of the operation finally came, Firth felt nervous. On the cab ride over to the hospital, he had an epiphany. He suddenly didn't want to go through with the surgery. For some reason, the compulsion wasn't as strong at that moment, and he just didn't feel safe getting an illegal operation at a small underground clinic in Mexico. When Firth got to Dr. Brown's office, he saw the assisting physician carrying a giant blade. That settled his doubts once and for all. He was out. Brown offered to give Firth some sedatives to calm his nerves, but Firth refused. He knew he wouldn't get his money back, but Firth had a novel solution that would be a win-win for everyone. He invited his friend, Philip Bondi, to take his place. Bondi was more than willing. After all, everything was already set up. In 1998, Bondi made his way to Tijuana and went under the knife. Unlike Firth, he didn't have any fears or doubts. This was the beginning of the rest of his life. But the operation didn't go as planned. Coming up, Bondi's search for treatment leads to tragedy. Now back to the story. In 1997, Dr. Greg Firth was a leading advocate for apotemnophilia, a condition where individuals have an intense desire to have a limb amputated. And he supported his friend, Philip Bondi, who wished to remove his own leg too. Shortly after Firth backed out of his own operation, Bondi went under sedation. When he woke up, his leg was gone. Dr. John Brown gave Bondi crutches and some mild sedatives before sending him back to a San Diego hotel to recover. Firth stayed in the adjoining room to keep an eye on his friend. He couldn't help but smile when they talked over dinner. Bondi was over the moon with the results. He couldn't wait to get started on his new life as soon as his recovery was complete. But that would take longer than either had originally suspected. Even with medication, Bondi was in a lot of pain. And he made some comments about the surgery that Firth found alarming. Bondi said that he hadn't gone completely under. He'd felt each stroke of the blade as it had cut into his leg. If Dr. Brown had made a mistake with the anesthesia, maybe he wasn't as qualified as he claimed. Firth's concern only grew over the next few hours as Bondi's condition worsened. The generic antibiotics weren't working. His leg stump looked infected. Firth worried about his friend, but he knew he couldn't call anyone for help. The surgery was illegal, and he feared they'd all get in trouble. There was nothing for Firth to do but pray Bondi would get better. Two mornings after the surgery, Firth knocked on the door to check on Bondi, but didn't hear an answer. He slowly cracked the door open and walked in. He didn't want to wake his friend, but when he came closer to check on Bondi, a horrible stench filled his nostrils. The stump of Bondi's leg had turned black, and there was a sickly-smelling liquid all over the sheets. He wasn't breathing. Bondi was dead. Firth couldn't believe it. Just hours before, his close friend had talked with him in this very room. It looked like he'd suffered a painful death. 
What should have been the start of Bondi's new life was, instead, the end of it. When the coroner collected Bondi's body, they launched a swift investigation. Medical examiners found that Brown hadn't left enough skin to cover Bondi's bone when he'd amputated the leg. Instead, the flesh fit too tightly and the skin cells died, resulting in gaseous gangrene. Gangrene occurs when tissues in the body die due to a lack of blood. The rotting flesh becomes a breeding ground for bacteria, and infection can spread to the bloodstream. As the term gaseous suggests, the bacterial infection resulting from this form of gangrene makes toxins that release gas, leading to further tissue death. If it reaches the heart or other vital organs, gangrene can quickly become fatal. Firth was right. Bondi had suffered a painful death, and prosecutors threw the book at Dr. Brown. He hadn't had a medical license in years and was accused of botching countless other procedures. The doctor was convicted of second-degree murder. The widely publicized case put the once-niche apotemnophilia community in the limelight, and the increased scrutiny didn't do anyone any favors. Most of the public couldn't understand why anyone would want to amputate a healthy limb. There was already a stigma attached, and this new attention only made it more taboo. Even in 1998, two decades after Dr. Money first began his research, the basic understanding of apotemnophilia hadn't changed. Researchers still theorized that it was a psychological disorder. But Bondi's tragedy had a silver lining. It spurred researchers to search for a cause. In 2003, a Columbia University professor of psychiatry named Michael First began a landmark study. He'd read Money's reports that linked bid with sexual desire. But the studies in the past had such a small sample size that First didn't believe they were an accurate representation. He wanted to hear from a larger portion of the community to get a clearer understanding of their desires. First surveyed 52 individuals with BID. They were between the ages of 23 to 77, and they all wanted their limbs removed. First and his team asked each subject to list their main reasons for wanting an amputation in the order of importance. 63% of the respondents wanted to restore a true identity while only 15% said their main reason was sexual in nature. These results validated what Firth and James had talked about. Apotemnophilia wasn't a sexual fetish. It was a matter of personal fulfillment. To get away from money's stigmatizing assumptions, Dr. First renamed the condition Body Integrity Identity Disorder. Since then, it's changed to Body Integrity Dysphoria. Some doctors initially confused BID with another condition known as body dysmorphic disorder, where someone focuses on a physical flaw that barely anyone notices. For example, someone with BDD may think their ordinary nose is grossly large or the small wrinkles on their face are astonishingly deep. The exact cause of body dysmorphic disorder is still unknown. And while it may seem like it's related to BID, first actually believed they were fundamentally different. 
He asserted that those with body dysmorphic disorder had a sense of shame and felt that their bodies were defective. But patients with BID didn't feel embarrassed about their limbs, nor did they find them faulty, just unnecessary. Instead, first thought that BID had more in common with gender dysphoria, a condition where someone feels intense anxiety because they believe that they were born into a body with the incorrect sex. According to the Mayo Clinic, people with GD have an intense desire to have a body that matches the gender they identify with on the inside. Key word being identify. Sex refers to a person's biology. The difference between a male and a female lies in which genitals they have and in their DNA. By contrast, gender is a cultural construct. The difference between men and women lies in the way they dress and behave. Gender can also vary from culture to culture. In the 1600s, European men displayed their masculinity by wearing high-heeled shoes and makeup. Today, those are considered more feminine behaviors. Many people's gender and sex identities are the same, meaning most biological males identify as men and most biological females identify as women but people with GD have a gender identity that doesn't correspond to their biological sex. Some, but not all, people with GD choose to undergo gender confirmation surgery so that their body matches their identity. First argued that people with GD shared similarities to those with BID. Both wanted their bodies to resemble the person they identified as, meaning their outward appearance would finally mirror their soul. First's revelation validated many people with BID. For too long, they'd felt alone. Doctors had regularly dismissed their requests and their desires. But now they had a study to point to that helped outsiders better understand the BID community. However, there was still no concrete explanation for the cause which made it difficult to identify a proper way to handle or treat the condition. After all, doctors still had an ancient vow to uphold, one that hadn't evolved to accommodate diagnoses like BID. As we discussed earlier, the Hippocratic Oath essentially means that a doctor will do no harm and do what is best for a patient. And traditionally, that is a pretty easy rule to follow. Doctors do whatever makes sense to cure diseases, treat conditions, heal damaged tissues, and so on. Sometimes they have to cause a small amount of harm for the greater good. Say, someone comes in with a broken leg, and the doctors have to reset the bone. It might be painful, but it's necessary for the patient's long-term health. However, with BID, things get a bit more complicated. Many people with BID truly believed that amputation would make them feel whole or complete. But most doctors maintained that removing a limb would be a social setback for the patient. After all, amputees face societal challenges that they'll have to navigate for the rest of their lives. The patient will have to relearn how to walk, climb stairs, and work out. They may need special accommodations and they'll face discrimination as differently abled people. Which is why doctors have traditionally turned to less invasive options to treat BID, like in-depth psychotherapy. Some counselors combine psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral therapy. 
This means they encourage patients to talk about their desires in order to identify where they come from and then use positive or negative reinforcement to train their clients to abandon unhealthy thought processes. However, people with BID largely claim that psychotherapy doesn't help. Perhaps the form of dysphoria is neurological, meaning its root cause lies physically in the brain. If that's the case, doctors might be able to treat BID with medication. In 2013, the psychiatric department at the University of Amsterdam put the neurological theory to the test. They examined five individuals with BID and compared them to a control group of 10 men without the condition. Each participant was hooked up to a brain scan. Then, researchers rubbed paintbrushes over their skin, stimulating various parts of their legs. The results were illuminating. The researchers found that the men with BID had decreased activity in the premotor cortex when their unwanted limb was stimulated. The control group didn't show any change in neural activity. This is important because the premotor cortex is the part of the brain that prepares the body's muscles to carry out exact movements. Researchers have also noted that damage to the premotor cortex can result in reduced awareness of a limb. This region of the brain, however, is still not fully understood. Here's a handy example of your premotor cortex at work. You're instructed to move a coin, but only after being shown a certain color. You are also told to wait five seconds before starting your movement. Activity in the premotor cortex will peak when you are making the plans to move your fingers and the coin. Your brain knows your own body the same way you know the floor plan of your home. You know the layout, where everything should be, and its function. Imagine that one day you wake up to find a new room in your house. You didn't have it built, and you don't know why it's there. It doesn't feel right. You don't quite know how to use the room like you do everything else in your house, and you want to get rid of it. Theoretically, that may be what's happening in a bid patient's premotor cortex. It identifies an arm or a leg as something foreign, something that doesn't belong in the body, and the brain can't send the appropriate messages to those muscles. And just as you would want to demolish your extra room, people with BID desperately want to amputate their unwanted limbs. The University of Amsterdam team couldn't conclusively say why this happens, but their discovery demonstrated that BID probably had a neurological cause. In 2016, the team followed up on their study. This time, they took even more complex scans of people with BID. They found that their subjects had reduced gray matter in their premotor cortex. Put simply, gray matter is made mostly of neuronal cell bodies that initiate the transmission of information to other parts of the body, like muscles or glands which means it controls everything from seeing, hearing, and smelling to complicated processes like speech, decision-making, and self-control. The University of Amsterdam team concluded that gray matter reduction may have been linked to BID. However, they couldn't determine the root cause for the decreased gray matter, nor do they entirely understand how it connected to BID. More research is needed, 
but scientists struggle to find participants for new studies. BID is a very rare condition that likely affects less than a few thousand people worldwide. But their emotional pain is real. Their desires may seem strange at first, but most of them just want what many of us already have. A feeling of being whole. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.